Welcome to the Sunday School lesson from Jolton Church of the Nazarene. My name is John Mills, and I'm glad you could join us for this lesson. We are using uh, the lessons from the Nazarene Sunday School quarterly uh, for the summer of 2020. Today's lesson is the lesson from August 16th. And in today's lesson, we're going to be looking at Psalm 51. This was David's great psalm of confession and repentance. And we will actually be dividing this lesson into two parts. Today, we want to study what brings David to the situation that he finds himself in, to look at the horrible sin that he commits with Bathsheba and its effects on his life. And next week, I want to look at God's great salvation, how God's love and mercy are shown to us in David's forgiveness and restoration. But before we get into the lesson. I want to begin with a prayer that Paul prayed for the Philippians in Philippians chapter 1. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Amen. Think back to your days studying literature in high school or college. There's a particular type of literature called tragedy. Tragedies are the story of a hero, a hero who is brought down by his own flaws. Now, it usually begins with the hero in his prime, successful, respected, happy. But then the hero descends from greatness to destruction. Now, Shakespeare was very good at this. He wrote several of his plays as tragedies. One of the most famous is Hamlet, uh, the tragedy of the Prince of Denmark. Now, Hamlet is the Prince of Denmark, and he's visited by his father's ghost. And his father's ghost tells him, the man Hamlet knows as his stepfather is a traitor. He has murdered Hamlet's father so that he could marry Hamlet's mother and take over the kingdom. The rest of the play deals with Hamlet's plan to take revenge on this stepfather. Now, the play is a tragedy because Hamlet ends up destroying himself and almost everyone around him, both the guilty and the innocent. By the final scene of the play, the evil king, the evil stepfather, is dead. But so is Hamlet's mother. So is his best friend. So is the woman that he was going to marry. So is his best friend's father. You know, the final scene is a bloodbath with bodies dropping everywhere. Today, we want to study another tragedy, and this is from Scripture. The story of David, a man of great gifts and abilities, but brought low by his sins. David is described as a man after God's own heart. He's the man that led Israel to its greatest heights of power and prosperity and even spiritual life. But David was also a man who committed one of the most evil acts of anyone in Scripture. And this ruined the last 20 years of his rule as king. Psalm 51 is the psalm that describes David's reaction to his sin, and it's his plea for forgiveness and restoration. It's a psalm that celebrates God's mercy and love, how God restores David to a relationship with him. 
But we are going to begin looking today at the beginning of this story, which actually begins in 2 Samuel uh, chapters 11 and 12. When the story begins, David is about 50 years old. As we said, he's at the peak of his success. He's led Israel to unprecedented heights of power and prosperity. He is an accomplished military leader. He's a political leader who's united the country behind him. He's a religious leader. David was the one who had brought the ark to Jerusalem. David was the writer of many of the Psalms. Now, Israel is at war with the Ammonites, and this had actually begun about a year earlier. But at that time, and for a long time after that, warfare was not a continual year-round thing. It was seasonal. You didn't go out to fight war in the winter. The weather just didn't permit it. So, Scripture tells us it's springtime, it's time for the armies to go to war, and so Israel marches out to war against Ammon. But, Scripture makes a point of telling us David remains behind in Jerusalem. He doesn't go with the army. So, in the springtime, at the time when kings go off to war, David sends Joab out with the army. They destroy the Ammonites. They besiege Rabbah, the main city of the Ammonites. David remains behind in Jerusalem. And then one evening, David gets up from his bed and walks around on the roof of the palace. Now, this tells us we're told two very important things in this passage of Scripture. First, that David has stayed home rather than going out to war with the army. And we're told it's evening but David is just getting out of bed. The picture we get is of a king who has grown bored, tired of life, uh, you know, an idle person. He doesn't really know what to do with himself. Nothing seems to appeal to him. There is a word that's used to describe this type of problem, acedia. David suffered from this condition, and it's one that, that we all recognize you know, it's a dissatisfaction with life, a lack of spiritual uh, energy, an indifference to the spiritual life. Nothing seems to, to grab our attention. Nothing seems to be worth the effort of doing. Now, the early church described this as acedia, and St. Thomas Aquinas says it's disgust with activity. And it's interesting, the, the desert fathers, the, the desert fathers of the church, described it as the noonday demon because this is a sin, a temptation that comes in the full light of day when we least expect it. And when the temptation to acedia creeps up on us, we have to recognize the danger that it presents. And it's going to result in some horrible damage to David. So here we find David. He's bored. He's dissatisfied. He stopped doing what he should be doing. He's walking around on the roof of his palace. And this is the moment that Satan strikes. On the roof, David looks out over Jerusalem. And he sees a woman on another rooftop. She's taking a bath. Now, she's beautiful. And David's interest is piqued here. David is a peeping Tom. He's a voyeur. It's exciting for David to see this naked woman who doesn't know she's being observed. Now, David has a harem. He has a whole palace of beautiful women. All of them are available to him. But he's bored with these. 
Here he's presented with a different woman. And there's the lure of the unknown, the new. It's exciting for David to be spying on a woman who has no idea that he's there. Now, there's no indication that Bathsheba is doing anything improper. The truth is, poor people in that day had very little privacy. You had a large number of people living in some very small houses uh, crammed together. And so it's not like today when everyone has their own bedroom, their own bathroom. You know, people would have been used to, to sharing quarters. And so there's nothing to indicate that she's doing anything wrong. And so far, David hasn't done anything wrong. Uh, he didn't set out to spy on this woman. It just happened. You know, at this point, David could have gone off the roof, gone on about his business, and remained perfectly innocent. But he doesn't. David sends men to find out, who is this woman? So we see David begin to nibble at the bait that Satan offers him. And once we do this, usually the battle against temptation is over. After this, it's usually a matter of time. Well, David learns that she is Bathsheba. She is the wife of Uriah the Hittite. And this is one of David's mighty men. Now, Uriah is not an Israelite. He's a Hittite. He is not serving in the army because of a loyalty to Israel or patriotism. He more or less is there because he's chosen to align himself with David. You know, the Bible describes him as being among these mighty men. These are men who are personally loyal to David. They've devoted their lives, really, to David and to David's success. So David could have stopped at this point, and he should have stopped. You know, once he learns that this woman is the wife of Uriah, he knows that she's definitely off limits. But this is the problem of sin. When something is forbidden, it becomes even more attractive to us. Paul talked about the awful contradiction that the law sets up, that the law, when it tells us not to do something, it makes us want to do that even more. Well, David sends messengers now to get Bathsheba. He has her brought to him, and he has sexual relations with her. The implication is that he more or less rapes her. Now, this would be a situation where she has very little power to say no. She really doesn't have the option of defying the king. And so this is not a consensual affair which would be bad enough on its own. David is taking full advantage of his power and authority as king to take another man's wife. Then, once David has enjoyed himself, he sends Bathsheba away, and he goes on about his life. So, this is not a grand romantic love story. You know, the story of a grand love between a man and a woman. We see here the very picture of selfishness, this is a man who cares only for himself. He takes his pleasure wherever he pleases. Other people just aren't important to him. His desire is what matters. And so we can see the horrible selfishness of sin. Uh, once David has had what he wants, he has no more desire or need for Bathsheba. But even though David is through with the situation, David considers it over and done with. It's not. Sin, with its complications, tends to hang on in our lives. There's a problem. 
Bathsheba becomes pregnant, and she sends word to David. We get another idea of David's callousness here. David doesn't respond to Bathsheba. He doesn't attempt to reassure her. There's no uh, move to comfort her. We don't know that he says anything to her. Instead, he sets in motion a plan to deal with the situation. So David has Uriah brought back to the palace. David, uh, Uriah returns from the battlefield, and he is to provide a report to David on what is going on. Now, David's intention is once Uriah has reported to him, Uriah will go to his own home for rest, relaxation. Uriah has been away from his wife for, you know, several months now. And it's almost certain while he's at home, he'll have sexual relations with his wife. Then when Bathsheba has her baby, it can be passed off as Uriah's. It was conceived while he was home from the front. But there's a problem. Uriah doesn't go home. He sleeps at the palace that night. Now, we have to ask ourselves, did Uriah know what David had done? And it's entirely possible. David's act certainly wasn't a secret. Many people in the palace had to know about this. David had sent servants to find out who Bathsheba was. David had sent servants to bring Bathsheba to him. He had met with her in the palace itself. He had sent servants to take her home from the palace. Bathsheba had sent a message through someone to tell David that she was pregnant. So with so many people knowing about this, there would have to be gossip. You know there would have to be gossip. When Uriah reports to the palace while he's waiting to deliver his report to David, you can imagine there's someone there who can't wait to whisper in his ear, you need to know what's been going on here. You need to know what David has done. Well, the next morning, Uriah or David finds out Uriah didn't go home, but he slept at the palace. So he calls Uriah to him and he asks him, you know, why didn't you go home? Second Samuel 11, 11 uh, tells us, Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents. And my commander Joab and my Lord's men are camped in the open country. How could I go to my house to eat and drink and make love to my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. Uriah's reply is a rebuke to David. He says, you know, the ark, Joab, the men of the army, they're all roughing it in the open country. They're living in tents. They're living in danger. How can I go home and eat, drink, make love to my wife? while they are shouldering the load. And David would have to feel the sting of this rebuke because this is exactly what David is doing. He's at home in the palace. He's eating. He's drinking. He's enjoying not only his own wives, but he's taking other men's wives. All of this while his soldiers are all fighting and dying for him. And so when David hears Uriah say, As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. He had to feel the rebuke that's there. Now, it may be the situation that Uriah knows about the affair, and it may be that David knows that Uriah knows. David may just be wanting a cover-up to establish what's called plausible deniability. 
It's not really that he wants to keep anyone from finding out. It's too late for that. But David needs to have the veneer of responsibility. He needs to be able to maintain the pretense that this is Uriah's son instead of his own. You know, when you read over the history of England and you read about their kings, there were always kings who had illegitimate sons. Everyone knew that this was the king's son, but they couldn't be officially acknowledged. Officially, they had to have a different father. And it may be that this was David's plan, and Uriah simply is having none of it. He's telling David, I'm not going to be a part of this. I'm not going to be a part of raising this son and pretending he's my own when everyone knows he's yours. So David tries again. This time, though, he gets Uriah drunk. His thinking, he'll give Uriah another day to think this over. Maybe Uriah will realize it's in everyone's best interest for him to play along. And David puts a little extra insurance in place. Verse 13 tells us that night at David's invitation, Uriah eats and drinks with David, and it specifically says David made him drunk. But again, Uriah does not go home, drunk or sober. He stays at the palace. The next morning, David gives up on his plan to have Uriah known as the child's father. And he comes up with a different plan. He writes a letter to Joab, the commander of the army, and he tells him, he says, put Uriah at the front of the battle where the fighting is the heaviest and then pull everyone else back. Leave Uriah exposed so that he will be struck down. So David is very specific here. This is not to be left to chance. Uriah is to be abandoned by his own men, to be left in a place where he will certainly be killed. And so we can't gloss over this. This is cold-blooded, premeditated murder. And we get another idea of David's callousness he uses Uriah to carry this message back to Joab. Uriah is carrying his own death sentence. And David's scheme works. Joab carries out the orders. Uriah is killed. And a number of others are killed. These are men whose only crime is being in the wrong place at the wrong time. And David then, in a very hypocritical mode, sends a public message to Joab telling Joab, ah, don't worry about this. These things happen in battle. And then Scripture tells us Bathsheba mourns for Uriah. When the period of mourning is over, David takes Bathsheba as his wife. And again, we don't seem to, to feel that Bathsheba has any choice in the matter. It doesn't say David proposes marriage. It says David sins and takes Bathsheba. She's brought into the palace, and then eventually this child is born. Now, to David, the situation has been resolved. Everything has been worked out. There's been no public scandal. With Uriah dead, now Bathsheba and her child, they can legitimately be claimed as David's. So in David's mind, it's over. He had a problem. He dealt with it. There's no indication that David felt bad about this that his conscience bothered him at all. And we should see something in this that should really frighten us. David is one of the most righteous men in the Bible, described, as we said earlier, 
described as a man after God's own heart. You know, this was the man who had written some of the most beautiful praise psalms to God. The man who dances with abandon in front of the ark as it's brought to the temple. And this man commits some of the most horrible acts and then manages to justify himself to the point where he seems to feel no guilt or no shame. Jeremiah 17, 9 tells us, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? And we, do, we get a glimpse of that heart in David here. Scripture talks about those who have seared their conscience, uh, seared it as if with a hot iron so that they can no longer feel its condemnation. This description of David really should scare us to death. If David, this man of God, could sear his conscience to this point, what does it tell us about us? What are we capable of? You know, what are we hiding from ourselves? What are we pretending is not there? What sin is corroding and destroying our lives? It's, it's interesting to think, how did David get to this point? Now, one of the most striking things we're told about David in Scripture is the, the sheer number of people who are described by Scripture as loving David. It's pretty unusual for the Bible to specifically to say this person loved that person. And, and it's only recorded in, in a few instances. But it's said about David again and again. Scripture records King Saul as loving David in 1 Samuel chapter 16, 21. Jonathan is described as loving David in 1 Samuel 18. Michael, the daughter of Saul, is described as loving David. Uh, King Hiram of Tyre. In fact, the Bible says in 1 Samuel 18, 16, all Israel and Judah loved David. Now, what's interesting is, nowhere in the Bible do we read that David loved so-and-so. Now, this doesn't mean that David didn't love anyone. You know, uh, we, we see a love for Absalom when David is grieving over Absalom's rebellion. But in all of these situations where Scripture specifically says this person loved David, it never reciprocates and says David loved this person. You know, uh, in the words of Meyer Shalev, he writes, David was loved but did not love, courted but did not, have to, but did not court. Uh, this self-indulgence led to emotional corruption, which tripped him up and led to his fall. And so you begin to wonder, had David begun to take the love of others for granted? Had David begun to see himself as especially deserving of that love? as being somehow more special than other people. You know, at this point in the life of David, we see really a monster, a man whose ego had swollen to the point to where he is the only one who matters. You know, it's hard to find a more hateful or evil example of selfishness. At this point, David cares only for himself. If he sees something that he wants, he takes it. Once he's had whatever he wants, he moves on with his life with no concern for how others are affected. 
no contrition, no remorse. Psalm 51 tells us about David's ultimate restoration and forgiveness. But really, if I'm honest, you know, at this point, I don't really want David to be forgiven. You know, I'm thinking David is, is a despicable person. He needs to get what's coming to him. And we need to recognize our true condition under sin, what sin actually does to us. You know, in this case, uh, we're talking about David, but we have to recognize all of us uh, share this, this characteristic of David, this awfulness of sin and of being under sin and what we do uh, when we're under the influence of sin. But now Scripture tells us the thing David had done displeased the Lord. And so the Lord sends Nathan, the prophet, to confront David. And we need to recognize this is sheer mercy on God's part. When God confronts us over our sin, when He convicts us, it is the ultimate mercy and kindness at work. So Nathan goes to David. And he goes because the king was the last resort for justice under the law. When a citizen of Israel had been wronged, they could appeal this situation to the king, and the king would make a final verdict. And we're given numerous examples of when this took place in Israel. And so Nathan approaches David under the pretext of having a, a case for David to hear. Uh, he's wanting David to apply justice in this case. And so he tells David uh, this, this account of two neighbors. One is rich, one is poor. Now, the rich man is very rich, large numbers of cattle and sheep. The poor man has really only one valuable possession, and that is a lamb. A lamb that has been raised with the family treated as a pet. Scripture says this lamb shared his food, drank from his cup, even slept in his arms. The, the lamb was treated as a member of the family. Now, one day the rich man has visitors. He needs to feed them, but rather than take one of his own animals, of which he has an abundance, he takes this one pet lamb from the poor man and he feeds it to his visitors. Now, when David hears this case, his rage erupts. David cannot believe that a man could do such an evil, selfish thing to his neighbor. For this rich man who had everything to take the one prized possession of his neighbor, to take that for himself, David decides this cannot be allowed. And so David pronounces judgment. This man deserves to die. And then Nathan turns to David, points his finger and says, You, you are the man. Nathan gives David a message straight from God, where God tells David, I made you king. I gave you all Israel and Judah, and if this wasn't enough, I would have given you anything else. But you despised me. You despised my word when you struck down Uriah the Hittite and you took his wife. And so David is told, you know, the monster here, the monster is you. 
You had more than you could ever use, and yet you took the one precious possession that Uriah had. You took his wife, and then you took his life. And this accusation pierces David to the core. And this is where we finally begin to see something worth redeeming in David. He sees himself as he truly is for the first time. He comes face to face with his own depravity, with his own evil. He sees the ruin caused by his own ego. And David repents. Scripture presents this very matter-of-factly. 2 Samuel 12, 13 says, Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, The Lord has taken away your sin. And so there's not a lot of time spent on it. Uh, but we can see here, you know, one of the very uh, most amazing acts of God that we can repent and confess even of the most horrible of sins, and be forgiven. So we see the greatness of God's salvation. In Psalm 51, David pleads with God. He says, Hide your face from my sins. Blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. And the amazing thing, God responds by granting David's request. Now, we began this lesson by describing this as a tragedy. Here we do see a tragedy, the downfall of one of the greatest men of Israel. But David does repent, and Scripture makes it clear David is restored to a full relationship with God. But we also have to remember the tragedy of this, the last 20 years of David's life and reign consist of, of one disaster, one setback after another. He's got a son who rapes his sister, David's daughter. He's got another son, Absalom, who takes revenge and kills the first son. Later on, Absalom rebels against David. He attempts to take over the kingdom. He tries to kill his very own father. After this is all settled, David uh, faces a second rebellion under an Israelite named Sheba. There's a three-year famine, which is ended only by sacrificing seven of the grandsons of Saul. Uh, David later sins by making a census of the fighting men, and a plague breaks out that kills 70,000 of the people of Israel. Near the end of David's life, he wants to build a temple for God, but God doesn't allow him to. The reason, God tells him, you have shed much blood on the earth in my sight. Now, part of this referred to David being a warrior and to his military activities, but you also have to feel that David is paying for the bloodshed when he had Uriah killed. You know, David's reputation was ruined from this point on. This episode hangs over the remainder of his rule, uh, even among his own people. And we get an indication of this when we, we hear the story of David fleeing from Absalom. As we said earlier, Absalom rebelled, and David has to flee Jerusalem to run for his life. 
And as he is leaving the city, we are told that he's followed by a man named Shimei. And this man follows David, throwing stones at David, cursing David. And he's crying out, get out, get out, you man of blood, you scoundrel. And really, as we look at this, you know, we can see the murder of Uriah still producing consequences in how people saw David all those years later. So we get a glimpse of the true tragedy of this incident when we see how Scripture records the very end of David's life. In 1 Kings chapter 1, Scripture tells us, When King David was very old, he could not keep warm, even when they put covers over him. Now, David dies at the age of 70, so he's not extremely ancient. But the picture that we get from Scripture is of a man of great feebleness, senility, really a man that's been ravaged by life. And Kings goes on to tell us the story of David and Abishag. Because David cannot keep warm, they bring in a beautiful young virgin named Abishag, and she will share his bed. But Scripture makes it plain. She's there only to keep him warm. At this point, David has no sexual vitality left. And I've always wondered, you know, why does Scripture include this detail about David? But I think the point is being made here. In the prime of his life, David sinned by sleeping with a beautiful woman who was not his wife. Now, David ends his life by sleeping with a beautiful woman who's not his wife. But at this point, he's so feeble, he's so weak, he can't have any sexual relations with her. He's no longer virile and potent. He's reduced, really, to a shell of his former self. David, even though he's been restored to fellowship with God, even though his sins are forgiven, he fails to finish strong. Contrast how David ended with what Scripture tells us about Moses. In Deuteronomy 34, 7, we're told that Moses was 120 years old when he died, yet his eyes were not weak nor his strength gone. And so we have to ask ourselves, what could David have accomplished? What, what would have happened in those last 20 years of his life and rule if he had remained faithful, if this incident with Uriah and Bathsheba had never happened? So we have to learn that God forgives sins, and we can be forgiven. But we also have to remember we have to live with the consequences of our sins. Now, the lesson for this week has not been very encouraging or positive. In fact, it's been rather depressing. But next week, I want to turn to something more positive. I want to look at David's forgiveness and restoration as shown to us in Psalm 51. Now, I've tried to stress the awfulness of David's sin. I want us to have an understanding of the true depravity here. I want us to understand we are no different. If we're honest with ourselves, we have to face up to the fact that at some point we were just as wicked as David. It's only when we recognize the true desperation and awfulness of our lives under sin that we truly value and appreciate 
the wonderful aspects of God's salvation. In Ephesians 3, uh, Paul writes to the Ephesians, and he says, you know, my prayer for you is this, that you may grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. And so what I want us to understand when we look at David, I want us to grasp the true awfulness of David's sin so that we can understand the the true measure of the love of Christ and the salvation that the love of Christ has provided for us. When we grasp the love of God, we can't help but love God in return. Scripture tells us we love Him because He first loved us. So next week, we get to uh, the, the better part of this story. And I hope you will be able to, to join us for that. But let's close with a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day you've given us. We thank you for this opportunity to study your word and to learn from you. And we do thank you, Lord, for the great salvation that you make available to us. We praise you and we honor you in your name. Amen.